A new Christian may not speak, we mentioned it last week, may not speak with the theological language that we have in church after you've been around for a while. But you're going to be like the man in the New Testament, remember, when Jesus healed a fella and these religious leaders came to him and wanted to know what had happened. He didn't have any theological terms. He didn't have any great sermons to preach. Do you remember the phrase? All I know is, once I was blind, now I can see. In fact, if you were to say to me, Pastor, I just, I just don't have any testimony, I would suggest to you, you've not met the God of heaven. Because something in your life is going to be different. Your thoughts, your heart, something spiritually is going to take place in your life if you've accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was once a troublemaker. Now he is a peacemaker. And this peaceful assurance that comes over him is first in recognition that there's a personal God. You see it there in verse 2. He calls him the high God. This high God, this Elion, has shown himself to Nebuchadnezzar. If you're unsaved, you cannot enter heaven on the basis of what someone else knows about God. Salvation requires a personal understanding and acceptance of what God has done for you, and we know through his son Jesus. If you are saved, that peace that you desire in your heart cannot come to you by way of what someone else will tell you. It comes to you in the, in the experiences of life, in the circumstances that you're enduring, in the things that you're going through, and you begin to realize there is a God in heaven. He is in control, and he can watch over my circumstance as well. The personal nature of God. There's a peace in knowing, as Psalm 91, I love how, how personal this sounds. Listen to it, Psalm 91, verse 2. He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Psalm 92, verse, or excuse me, Psalm 91, verse 2. Well, there's a peaceful assurance in knowing this personal God, also in knowing this eternal God. Nebuchadnezzar, there in verse 3, God's kingdom, he says, is everlasting. And there comes a time when all of us must face our own mortality, right? To realize, you know what? I've got less in front of me than I have behind me. But we've got eternity, so we'll, we'll focus on that. But to realize that Nebuchadnezzar, as all potentates, once thought as if they could live forever. But as great as he was, or if you want to personalize it, as good as you are, there's nothing of this life you're going to take with you, right? As good as you are, as good a life as you've had, it's all going to be left. Only one life, you know the phrase, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You'll never know the peace of God until you come to rest in his everlasting arms and stop living in pursuit of one more conquest. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king to ever rule the earth, but nothing in this world can give you peace with God until you desire, as Paul said in the New Testament, to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the heart of Nebuchadnezzar is changed. In some way, it's obvious with a peaceful assurance, now we see this vision, and it's a problematic dream. I'm just going to read the whole thing, verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. Everything good, right? 
He's got no worries, no problems. There's no enemies. And I saw a dream, and it made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions in my head troubled me. Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. And then came the magicians, astrologers. We've seen these, this group before, haven't we? Daniel saved their life. Soothsayers and I told the dream before them, but they, they couldn't make known unto me the interpretation of it. But at the last, as if a, nobody else can do it, how about my buddy Daniel? Daniel's in charge of these guys, so he, he lets them go. And now Daniel comes in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar. Remember, that's his, his Babylonian name. According to the name of my God, and in whom the spirit of the holy gods, and before him I told the dream, saying, here it is, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in thee, no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed, I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height was great. And the tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached into the heavens, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. Everybody knew of it. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. And the beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs of it, and all the flesh fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven, and cried with aloud, aloud and said, Thus Hew down the tree, cut off the branches, shake off his leaves, scatter his fruit, let the beast get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron of brass. We looked at that when we studied Revelation. See it again later. In the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with a beast in the grass of the earth. This once great king like a beast feeding in the field let his heart be changed from man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him and let seven times pass over him all these things will come back when we see the prophecies later verse 17 this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. There is the dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, Daniel, declare the interpretation thereof. For as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods, he still has this Babylonian vocabulary, is in thee. Now, once again, it is obvious that the wise men can't interpret the dream. Finally, Daniel comes in before the king, much like uh, David was brought before Saul to calm his fears when nothing else could help. The apprehension caused by the dream, Nebuchadnezzar resting comfortably, verse 5 says he was afraid and troubled. You ever been afraid and troubled? This fear that is mentioned, he says, I was fearful, I was afraid. It's descriptive of a snake that has recoiled when you've chased it with a hope. You've seen that snake, haven't you? And he's looking at you and you're looking at him. And one of you is going to get the other one, right? That's this fear, this recoil that comes because something's chasing you. And then his word for trouble. It's a level of anxiety that nauseates you. You can't eat. 
You can't sleep. Nothing brings you joy. Nebuchadnezzar was literally plagued with hysteria. We would call him a raving lunatic. It manifests itself in sleepwalking, memory loss, mental instability, manic depression, all of which Nebuchadnezzar has experienced before. Awakened from sleep, then, he could not recall the dream in all of its detail, but Daniel brings it out of him. His fear seems to keep him quiet one minute. It makes him angry the next. His moods are swinging. Some have suggested that his father, Nabopolassar, suffered the same mental instability. In verse 17, Nebuchadnezzar calls himself base, which is not a word of humility, but one of humiliation. His father described his own humiliation. So Nabopolassar described his own humiliation in historical documents as weak and feeble. J. Vernon McGee said, A great deal of mental and emotional problems in our world today are the result of spiritual problems. Now, you're not a raving lunatic, okay? But perhaps you have known the difference of knowing the will of God, living in the will of God, of being at peace in the will of God. And then the difference of being like Paul in the New Testament when he was kicking against resisting the will of God, the authority of God. Maybe you know that difference. Nebuchadnezzar is in the latter half of his reign, the second term. His family lunacy is haunting him. And it's becoming apparent to everybody that knows him. They don't know how he might react to the next circumstance. Will he get angry? Will he roast somebody in a fire again? Will he have them slain? driven from the, the kingdom, or will he be favorable? We don't know. Well, this dream not only caused apprehension, but also came with an application with this dream there in verse 17. Remember, verse 17 is a key verse. I called it the key verse, but it is a key verse to understanding all of Daniel. The key verse to understanding this chapter its impact on Nebuchadnezzar and even, I think, applicable to today. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand of the word of the holy ones. Here it is. To the intent that the living may know that the most high God, this is the the phrase that's repeated over and over throughout Daniel, the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomsoever he will, and he sets up over it the basis of men. It's the theme of Daniel repeated over and over. There is a God in heaven. He does rule over the affairs of men. He's not lost contact. Well, this is uh, exactly what Daniel had first said to Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2. Daniel's three friends also suggested this to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3. And this time, the declaration came by watchers and word of the holy ones. What's that all about? Now, we'll come back again to that later as we get into prophecy But these are holy beings created by God to administer in the affairs of the world. We'll see more of that later on. But some of you may say, you know what? I'm not sure that God knows everything. Okay, you can go there if you want. But even if God doesn't know everything, he's got his legions of angels. And they're everywhere. And they see everything. And don't you know, they report to this great God of heaven. So even if you don't think God knows everything, There's probably an angel that's seen it, right? Psalm 139, do you know that? When when he says, where am I going to go from your presence? How can I flee? Where can I hide? And it's a rhetorical question because you already know the answer. What's the answer? Where can you hide from God? Psalm 139, nowhere. There's no place 
to hide from God. Nebuchadnezzar can no longer deny the fact that his authority and fate are ultimately controlled by the Most High God who ruleth in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomsoever he will, and sets up over it the basest of men. Verse 17. Well, Daniel has continued to give honor to the king as unto the Lord, and so he is called upon to respond to this problematic dream in a rather perplexing way in this interpretation, verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour. This means he was speechless, didn't know what to say. Didn't, it, and it's not that he doesn't understand the dream, but he, he is immediately impacted with what needs to be said and how it's going to affect Nebuchadnezzar. And so his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Right? Like you said to the doctor. Just tell me, doctor, what is it? Just tell me what it is. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, the dream be to them that hate thee. So this is, this is something that is, is not favorable to you. And in, in the interpretation thereof to thine enemies, the tree that thou sawest which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven and sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair and the fruit thereof much, and it, in it was uh, meat for all, under which the beasts of the field and the dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It's you. Now that's okay. King's back to his swollen head as he had before. That's you, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto the heaven, thy dominion to the ends of the earth. Everybody knows Nebuchadnezzar. Whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, let the portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which is come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men. Thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomsoever he will. Whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Now in scripture, a tree can represent a lot of things, but it represents a man. A man like a tree planted by the rivers. You see that in Psalms in various places. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree, Psalm 92. A nation like Assyria with fair branches among the thick boughs, Ezekiel 31. Christianity itself is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree, Matthew 13. And of course, Israel like an olive tree. So this vision clearly refers to the man Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom in Babylon. And although the interpretation is clear, we see some hesitation from Daniel, verse 19. Why would Daniel hesitate to tell this dream? I think it reveals something in the character of Daniel, the relationship that he has with Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, in an effort to win him to the Lord. I don't think you're going to win too many people to the Lord with a heavy hand. Of, you can tell them the truth, 
I mean, Daniel could have just hit him between the eyes with it, right? He could have just said, it's you, king, because you're proud and boastful and you won't believe it, and you just hit him with it. You could do that. But in passing, it may just be that the missing thing in many conversations that we would have about or with the unsaved is not that we fudge the truth or hesitate to give the truth, but to understand that not even the Lord is pleased with the destruction of the wicked, right? Ezekiel 33. He he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they might turn from their evil way. Daniel, perhaps, I don't know what he did in this hour before he comes back into the king. Did he wipe some tears out of his eyes? Did he get a drink of water, clear his throat, prepared himself? Because he's going to have to speak some hard truth to a man who's become a friend to him over these last 25 years. So he gets ready, he prepares himself, comes back to tell the king without any malice in his heart. All of us appreciate that doctor that has a good bedside manner. You ever had a doctor like that? I had a doctor one time. I have pins in my shoulder. It's a long story. I won't go into it. But I was young. And I had this injury, and I had this break, and it just cast, and like I said, I won't go into it. Get all done. And I said, Doc, it's still sore. He said, well, it's still broke. <laughs> I was like, well, what does that mean? He said, we're going to do surgery. I mean, he was just like, just like that, you know. I'm, I'm like 17 years old. And my whole summer has been lost with this thing, and now he's telling me this, and I'm, what am I, I can't play any sports. I, it was a long, long story. I passed out. Nobody likes a doctor like that, right? You like a doctor with a little bit of bedside manner. I think that's, that's how Daniel's approaching this. He's going to tell the truth. He's going to give it to him the way it needs to be given to him. But he's taking some moments here to give a little you know, time to let any kind of malice, any kind of thought of you deserve this, any kind of those things, let that, let that pass so I can tell the king in a way that shares my care for him. Daniel's invitation to escape uh, judgment. He calls Nebuchadnezzar to break off his sins and iniquities there in verse 27. Uh, This was God's final call, I think, to Nebuchadnezzar. This is going to be his final warning. This self-made, self-absorbed king, and Daniel knew it was his last chance to reach the king. But even in this, we see the Lord is long-suffering to us word, right? He's not willing that any should perish and all should come to repentance. And that's just like human nature, isn't it? What do we tend to think when God is long-suffering? We don't think about, oh, I better get myself right with the Lord. We think about, well, I guess I got away with it, right? That's human nature. And so this prideful response, verse 28 continues, and all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and in the end of 12 months he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon, and the king spake and said, is this not great Babylon that I have built? for the house of the kingdom, by the might of my power, and for the honor of my majesty. While the word was in his mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They that shall make thee to eat grass like oxen seven times will pass over thee until thou Notice that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And that same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, 
And he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Isn't that just like human nature? God's long-suffering sometimes feeds a person's pride into thinking they don't need God. Whether you are a king on a throne, a pastor in a pulpit, church member in a pew, a Sunday school teacher, never forget that you serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Whatever your responsibility in or out of the church, fulfill it as unto the Lord. It's not your kingdom. It's not your place to do with as you please. You serve the Lord. Well, this prideful response was first spoken by this uh, high and mighty king there in verse 31. And while the words were yet in his mouth, God's word falls from heaven in judgment. The most high king, God, is going to give him over to his own insanity. And may I just say, that is most often the way God deals with man. God seldom, believe it or not, God seldom intervenes in the affairs of man. Now, there are times that clearly God has intervened. But think about the past seven, 10,000 years of history. God seldom intervenes in the affairs of man. He simply gives over, gives them over to their own passions, their own insanities, their own desires, and he lets it have its way in their hand. History corroborates this. In the life of Nebuchadnezzar, as a strange malady is said to have come over him toward the end of his kingdom, shortly before his death, you can read that in history. But a second chance is promised to Nebuchadnezzar, seven years His kingdom would return to him, which evidently had happened just a short time before his death. And this is all setting us up for an understanding of the end times, which we'll look at in prophecy. But for now, and before his death, look at his testimony, which we began with, and he returns to verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What are you going to do? And at the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. My counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor Elohim, king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, because that was me, he knows, he will abase. Verse 34 says, his understanding returned to him. Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself. He now uses this term for God that he's not understood before. Elohim, this verse 34, the most high God, no longer just a God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no longer just the God that gave insight to Daniel, but he's my God. This most high God is mine, no longer just third party or second hand. When verse 34 says he blessed the Lord, it means he kneeled before the Lord. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar before had people kneel to him. 
He's now kneeling in worship to the Most High God. Well, as he kneels, then in verse 36, his reason returns to him. Nebuchadnezzar honors the Lord. Verse 37, he gives honor to the King of Heaven, which takes us all the way back to verse 17. We'll close with that. Verse 17, this key verse. Three lessons, and I'll let you go. Three lessons from verse 17. You think of that as a key verse, mark it in your Bibles if you like. But chapter 4, excuse me, in verse 17, those three phrases that you see there, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, he gives it to whomsoever he will, and he sets up over it the basis of men. Contrary to popular belief, God has not lost control. The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. And then it says he gives it to whomsoever he will. Contrary to popular, or excuse me, political thought, elections are overseen by God. I believe there will be a greater level of judgment against any leader who pretends to think that he is in control without acknowledging God. Second Corinthians tells us, of this judgment against he who exalteth himself against the knowledge of God. God puts down popular belief. He puts to rest political opinion. And verse 17, he sets up over it the basis of men. Why does God do that? So that no glory would have any reason, or so that no man would have any reason to glory in his presence. God sets, God seems to delight in using some of the simplest sometimes most ignorant uh, things in the world to declare his glory. Why? Because man tends to take the glory for himself, the pride of man. With those lessons in mind, I close with this one application. You must never forget whether you're standing in a voting booth with a perplexing decision or in your neighbor's yard after their dog just dug up all of your favorite flowers Daniel chapter 4 is a superb example of how we must think in relation to the impending judgment of God. Everything you think is different from the world because you understand, you have insight, and you know of the impending judgment of God. I think the reason for Daniel's delay in responding to the king back in verse 19 is exactly that to wipe the tears from his eyes, to prepare himself to speak to the king. And it may be that's the thing that's missing, that's absent in most Christian circles when we talk to or about the unsaved. We love to condemn. We love to say we're right. We love to say the truth is God's word. We love to say they're wrong. But when's the last time you wept for someone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I think that was Daniel. Daniel's heart was broken for what might happen to his friend. I would dare say that the most absurd thing that most of us could probably think of was the salvation of some, you know, terrible leader like Ahmadinejad of Iran or Kim Jong of North Korea or Chavez of Venezuela or now we have Putin on the horizon. That's the most absurd thought most of us could consider. But that's what we should be concerned about. 
I must say, for the leader of the free world. Now, this happened some time ago. I, I, was, I was literally frightened for him when he said it. He since has lived a fine life, I suppose. But a few years back, when the leader of the free world, I won't give you this president's name, but he declared, Bin Laden is dead, GM is alive, and I did it. I was concerned for that man. To think that you have such arrogance in your heart with no consideration for the God of heaven. And every time you say some sinner got what he deserved, you're denying the mercy of God that saved your sorry soul. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You'd better leave that vengeance with the Lord. Be quick to forgive. Because if you don't, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Compared to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was a saint. But compared to God, we all fall short of his glory. By Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony, we've learned there in verse 37, the king of heaven will judge and those who walk in pride. He, God, this God of heaven, is able to obey 